shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and to do their duty. Am I not content with the spouse, family, location, job, or have I encouraged someone to be in the Next week is the close of the commandments as well as reformation and the services. And then we get to begin with the Apostles' Creed, considering together Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, being at the end of the Ten Commandments, how is it going? Perhaps, perhaps it's been a bit of a slog these last several weeks. In fact, However, I must say, I've gotten more comments from more of you about these last weeks of putting on the commandments than I have probably in the seven years previous. <laughs> Perhaps it's the clarity of it all. And I, I think that's part of it. It's sometimes a, a bit of a, a struggle sometimes to take, say, an account of Jesus' life and See there the promises that he is living out and working out and doing on our behalf, and then and then to make real hay of those in our lives and to, and to find things to really cling to, to, to find things to, to take home, to find things to, to know, love, and trust in God even that much more fully, that is more completely, that much more joyfully and hopefully day by day and week by week in church. And yet, the commandments, well, they are too. There is a clarity about a simplicity, which is somewhat refreshing sometimes. On occasion, those conversations have also gone like this. You know, I'm, I'm glad my church still says this. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit next week, too. And the truth is, as we do, because the words are still there on the page. Exodus 20 hasn't been, there's no expiration date on Exodus 20. There's no expiration date on Deuteronomy 5 and 6. There's no expiration date on the words of the Lord that call us to recognize what holy looks like. It doesn't do us or God any good to lower the bar. It doesn't do God or us any good to somehow couch his perfect law in terms 
where imperfect people could somehow do it themselves and then grow complacent and or prideful in that the idea would be there's really no real reason for God. There's no real need for Christmas. There's no need for God to intervene. Jesus is just one more God. But what we have with our Lord Jesus is a real Savior. God come to be perfect. Not only in actions, not only in words, but also in thought, mind, and heart. And just like last week's commandment with number nine, this commandment of covenant, this is where the law of God reaches into our lives in the way that no police officer ever can. No MP can ever accuse you of coveting. On whatever, on what ground. This is a sin of the heart. This is a sin of the mind. This is also the fruit of a bad tree. You see, this is where God reminds us that sin is not just something that I do, but it is something that has corrupted my very being, corrupted my very way of thinking. Is it fair of God to hold me accountable for the inadvertent and uh, unprovoked thoughts of my mind? Yes. Yes, it is. It is not perhaps fair by our definition of fair, but it is just by God's definition of holiness. This is where the challenge of our Lord's omniscience is a good thing and a bad thing at once in terms of our experience. On the one hand, God knows everything, so he knows your need. He knows your your, your struggles. He knows your pains. He can identify with all of them. He knows them intimately. But when I'm trying to hide something from him, that's not necessarily good news, is it? Well, here we are with Cain, aren't we? Cain gave his offering. And we're not told what he thought in his mind. We're not told what he thought in his heart about what he thought he was doing when he gave that offering. What we are told from the outward behavior is that Cain brought an offering of his, the produce of his work, and Abel brought the fat portions from his work. And that's the only distinction that's made. We can speculate in all kinds of ways about what was going wrong with Cain in terms of his faith or in terms of where his heart was or whether he was thinking one way or another way. But what we do know is that Abel brought the plant portions and Cain did not. For whatever reason, Cain was not putting forward his best in terms of his sacrifice and his gift to God. And God then makes a distinction between the two. And we may say, 
God should have been happy with what came brought. We may say that God is unjust. We may shake our finger right back at God, just like Cain may have in his own mind and heart. But perhaps, perhaps, as many of you who are parents may have also done at various places in time with your children, took this on as a teachable moment. Teachable moment, right? Maybe it's an occasion where we can take Cain aside and, and encourage him in a way to try to, to try to teach him, to try to lay out for him another way of thinking about his relationship with God. And so God takes him aside to, to do a, a teachable moment. He doesn't take him out behind the woodshed. He has a talk with him. He gives him guidance. He counsels him. And he warns him that sin is right there alongside his heart. And it wants to have you. It is like a ravenous beast. It wants to grab hold of you and not let go. It wants to gobble you up. First Peter, he uh, considers Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And we're encouraged by Peter there to resist him, standing firm in the faith. Luther even gives the advice to laugh at Satan when he tempts you because he can't bear to be under the Christian's contempt. But Cain, knowing he can't shake his finger effectively at God, decides he's going to take it out on his brother. However, whether he was in confidence with his parents or whether he was keeping this all to himself, he asks Abel to meet him out in the field. And apparently, that is Moses' way of indicating to us that all of this is premeditated. So he goes and he takes Abel out alone so that he can rise up and kill him. What is Cain jealous of? What is he coveting? Well, first of all, this thing that God has given to Abel and not given to him. God has given honor to Abel in his offering and withheld that honor from Cain. And Cain is jealous. So what choice, obviously, did Cain have? Could have taken that teachable moment. He could have learned the lesson, couldn't he? Could have gone back to his field. He could have walked through them one more time. He could have prayerfully reconsidered his offering, his tithe, his gift to God. He could have imagined another way. He could have recognized thankfulness. And he could have been thankful instead. There was certainly an opportunity to repent, certainly an opportunity to, to see what he had done and what his brother had done and seen the Lord's response and seen and heard the conversation that the Lord had with him. He could have gone back to his fields and he could have reimagined himself. 
what would it be like to be truly thankful for these good gifts that God has given to you? What would that look like? And I would hope that he wouldn't have imagined that it was just a, a moving target, that God would just keep moving the goalposts further and further away, that I would always be under the thumb. That's where, that's where Satan gets into to drive our imaginations into seeing that we are slaves of children, children of the household. Abel, in his thankfulness, thankfulness of the child, comes with the bad portions of his offering and lays them before the Lord in all simplicity. Cain, Cain struggles with that. To the point now where he has taken his brother's life. Discontent with what his brother had given had given or had, had received from the Lord, and discontent with his own lot in life. Each of you has a place, a place that the Lord has put you. There may be a home, there may be relationships, there may be children, there may be parents, there may be people that you're responsible for in the workplace and people who are over you in your workplace. There may be all kinds of places where you are networked together with the world and with other people around it. And it may feel like there's more and more anxiety that builds up about those things and discontent with those circumstances and how that discontent can grow into other more outward forms of rebellion. But that discontent in and of itself, that discontent in and of itself is not innocent. It is at the root unthankfulness for what I have, what I have been given. The challenge, of course, is that each of us has a different lot in life. And it's very easy to, to put ourselves on some kind of a spectrum, some kind of a uh, a moving scale that that keeps moving those goalposts farther and farther away as we think about what it means to be successful. We've grown up with this notion of the American dream. And there's certainly good things about the idea of being responsible for oneself and being self-sufficient and such. And yet, it can also become a wolf that turns around and bites a person and holds on for dear life as it breathes discontent. To have what I don't have constantly. To be always striving, never arriving. To take a look at the good things around us and despising them as opposed to being thankful for them and for the people that the Lord has given us. And saying, wouldn't it have been so much better if I'd had someone else, something else, and been somewhere else in my life? This breeder of discontent is a constant wedge between us and the God who opens his hand to satisfy the desires of all living things. You see, he has promised not just manner for our lives, but also to surround us with his people that will be 
a support to us and to be family for us and to be part of our lives and doing meaningful things in his name. And if we can be thankful for them, and that is God's hope for us. So that when we come to the altar of God and to hear his words of forgiveness and to feed on his perfect life, his perfect body and blood, that we can very clearly ask the Lord for thankfulness. That I might see all of the people around me and all of the things around me with, with his eyes. To know them to be exactly what they are, good and gracious and fruitful gifts from a kind and loving Father who has already given me everything in his son. I do think that maybe there are other opposites for covetousness, but I do think that thankfulness is one of those that something that I personally can sink my teeth into. Apart from being covetous, I would ask the Lord to give me thankfulness. If I can be thankful, then I won't be manipulative to try to get my own way or controlling to, to put somebody under my thumb as though my thumb were big enough to put anything. But also then to see how wedges form in between other people's marriages or friendships or other relationships. And this last question, this is the one that can drive us to our knees over and over and over again. Have I done all that I could have done to mend or strengthen broken relationships? Well, obviously, it's such a wide open question. It demands that I would say, of course, I probably haven't done everything I could have done. Maybe I couldn't have even thought of the things that I should have done in time when they were happening. But there they stand, words against me. When I know that marriages have fallen apart around me, or friendships have fallen apart around me, or or job and workplace relationships have fallen apart around me, and I have been silent or stood by, then this commandment also speaks against me. And here I am, once again, under the law of God, who will save me from this body of death? Only Jesus Christ, the righteous one, does that. And so, for the sake of my own life and content, instead of going out and taking it out on my brother, I'm going to take this teachable moment. I'm going to hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to go back into my feelings. I'm going to ask him to give me his eyes, see them from his heart, from his perspective. So that instead of being covetous of what is over the fence on the other side, to be so terribly, terribly graciously thankful for all that the Lord has provided for me in this body of life. And to know that He has done so, so that I can 
serve him with all diligence and with all honor. Our Lord Jesus Christ went through his entire human life without having any one of those stray, inadvertent, covetous thoughts. Perfect in every way. But he didn't do it just for himself. He became flesh and blood for you so that his thoughts would cover over your thoughts. So that his life with full cover over your life, so that his flesh could cover over your flesh, so that you could disrobe yourself of sin and be clothed with his righteousness. Everything that he is, he gives, so that everything that you are, he might take to himself. Everything on the outside, Everything on the inside, so that our fellowship with our Lord God can be complete because of His Son. May we always, always cling to Him in thankfulness, never coveting His glory, except for the fact that it is a gift given free from a Father who cares deeply about each of His children. In Jesus' name, Amen. The peace of God that passes all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in faith towards Christ Jesus. Amen.